0: facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Wonderful Wednesday to you. It is so good to be back in the chair, back behind the mic on The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hope you guys had a great holiday. Extend the mix through the weekend into July the 4th, and I'm really happy to be talking to you. And hey, it's your show too, and that's why you can call right now. Grab a line, get yourself on the air. If you've got a question, you want to take part in the conversation, you can call right now 888 914 9149. And again, hope you had a great 4th of July, great Independence Day. And uh, I know I sure did. It was nice to have that, that time off. I was in Chicago. At the worldwide headquarters of Relevant Radio last week, had some great meetings. It's great to see everybody. Had a really fun show live from the headquarters with my special guest Maggie Greshel, on Friday, talking about micro marriages. That we we had too much fun on that on that episode. Yes, and it is it is Maggie Carosa. Thank you, Jim. I, I, I did that on the show too. I almost forgot. And we talked about her wedding, talked about her Roman honeymoon. It was a lot of fun if you didn't uh, catch that episode do check the archives. I also want to welcome back producer Jim Shaper who was away on holiday. We missed you Jim. I didn't see you in Chicago.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we missed you too, but it was good to be away with the family to get some nice sunshine down in the beautiful state of Florida and it's good to be back though. Great to be back yeah. with you. It's great to have you back. Did you have a good 4th? It was great. It was fantastic. Nice, nice and quiet and uh Made some uh, my, our, our uh, kind of a attempt at a Philly cheesesteak, kind of a cross between Philly cheesesteak sandwiches and um, the Italian the <laughs> Italian beef here in nice. Chicago. So yeah, oh. had that. It was fun, and then we, we got to c- catch some fireworks last night too. So it was it was really good. How was yours?
0: Uh, well, you know what? Well, we had Canada Day on on Saturday, which is kind of our national holiday, and um, I was actually on the I was in the airport. That day, my my flight got delayed, like so many flights oh. uh, on this holiday weekend. But um, got back at about midnight, early Sunday morning, and just, yeah, just kind of had a relaxing day. Yesterday was really nice, just to just to do that. And a lot of you guys listening right now are probably in the car right now. Maybe you're you're still on holiday. Maybe you're driving home. About sixty million Americans were on the road. We've got two hundred or so radio stations right now. All across the United States, you might be listening on the radio in the car, you might be listening on the relevant radio app, wherever you are. So glad to have you. 888-914-9149. One of the things that happened, Jim, while I was away over the weekend, I was kind of traveling, didn't really catch wind of this till later. Huge Marion controversy on social media, on Twitter. Mary went viral. And that's always, it's very often a double-edged sword. Very often our Catholic Marian beliefs get attacked. That's exactly what happened here. I'm going to get into that. Led to a lot of mudslinging, a lot of conversation, but hopefully a lot of enlightenment as well. It's a great chance to make lemonade out of lemons. We're going to talk to you about what was said, uh, how to respond to it. We'll get to that uh, really, really soon. Maybe you saw that, maybe you didn't, maybe you were busy, but I'll fill you in before we get to that, though, I have to, I have to talk to you guys about this. 888-914-9149's Cale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Today's gospel, one of the most eerie events in the life of Jesus, the exorcism of the gathering demoniacs, plural. Now, this is interesting because in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, there's only one. A demon in the tombs, uh, living in this guy, a legion of demons. Oof, we'll get into that in just a second. But in Matthew's version, which was today's gospel reading from Matthew eight, I get this question a lot: Why are there two demoniacs in Matthew's gospel? Is this a separate incident? Matthew's got two of anything of everything. I'll, t- I'll talk to you about that in a second. It's kind of a two for one deal with Matthew. But he, here, it's a really bre- he actually cuts down quite a bit of what Mark uh, talks about. Uh, Here's Matthew uh, chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. When Jesus came to the territory of the Gadarenes, two demoniacs who were coming from the tombs met him. They were so savage that no one could travel by that road. They cried out, What have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? Some distance away, a herd of many swine was feeding. The demons pleaded with him. If you drive us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go then. And they came out and entered the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, where they were drowned. The swine herds ran away, and when they came to the town, they reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. Thereupon the whole town came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him, to leave their district. Okay, that, that is quite an eerie gospel for sure. And I do think that uh, Matthew here is kind of building on Mark's account. And I, I actually don't think there were two demoniacs. I'm going to tell you why that is in just a second. But uh, Matthew used Mark as a source, uh, and, and so did Luke, by the way. I think that um, Mark was the first gospel written. I went into this a little bit in, in our series on the gospel, of Mark, on the Faith Explained program, the other show that I host here on Relevant Radio. And I don't want to get into that right now, unless you want to ask me a question about it, 888 But But he, here's the point. Um, what, what actually Matthew does here, he, t- he takes out even some of the more kind of gory aspects uh, of what uh, Mark talks about in his gospel. For example, uh, in Mark, he talks about this guy who's living in the tombs—he's possessed, he's dormant, he's tormented. Uh, by the way, if you're if you're living in the tombs from a, from a Jewish perspective, that is totally not kosher. It's totally unclean. Um, and, and the rabbis talked about this all the time. If something passes through a cemetery, it has become unclean. Uh, they would say that. And and everybody. By the way, this is in Gentile territory. Jesus is among the Gentiles. He's in that region the Gerasenes, sometimes it's called the Gergesenes, sometimes it's translated as the Gadarenes, as as we have here in Matthew. It's a bit dicey as to where exactly this was, and I'm going to tell you why the the location is important in just a second, but it is Gentile uh, territory, but whether you're from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, it doesn't matter. This is a very, very scary situation. This guy, when when you read Mark's account in Mark chapter 5, he's got superhuman strength, Nobody can tie this guy up. They've tried. They've tried to bind him with fetters, with chains. He keeps breaking them. He's howling in the night. He's bruising himself with stones. This is incredibly frightening. This is the stuff of nightmares. And so Matthew kind of, for some reason, for his own purposes, he he, kind of trims Mark's account here and excises a lot of the gruesome details. But he, he says there's two demoniacs coming out of the tombs. Now, why, why the two? Matthew's got two of everything. If you read his gospel, when, uh, for example, in the, in the triumphal entry, when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, there are two donkeys, two animals. Uh, he heals two blind men. Um, and we see this in, in Matthew chapter 9. We see it again in Matthew chapter 20. And what, why are there two demoniacs? Why, why are there always two of everything in Matthew? I think this is part of his, his literary technique as a gospel writer, where he's trying to show that Jesus is fulfilling the law. And he's not, he's not making this up, by the way. I think there was one guy. Mark has one guy. Luke has one guy. Matthew has two. Now, why is that scholars speculate on this? I, I think the reason for it Uh, has to do with what's said in the book of Deuteronomy. It's very, very clear that Matthew presents Jesus as a new Moses, a greater Moses. He fulfills the law. Um, As Moses went up Mount Sinai and comes down with the Ten Commandments, Jesus goes up the Mount of Beatitudes and has the Ten Beatitudes. And yeah, there are ten. I talk about that a lot. But this idea of two, it comes from the book of, of Deuteronomy. Again, it's another book of Moses. And Essentially what it says, there's a couple couple of parts of Deuteronomy where it talks about the legal process in ancient Israel. And two or three witnesses were required to get a conviction. Uh, Here's what it says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. It says, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So, this is due process, this is good legal precedent, if you will, but I also think that that's, that's what's going on here. There are two witnesses, like in Deuteronomy, there's two demoniacs, there's two blind men. I think Matthew is kind of kind of playing with this theme here. We see it also in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, where it says, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness so and by the way if you were one of the witnesses if there were if there was somebody found guilty of the death penalty one of those witnesses you you had to start off the the stoning and you were you were part of the solution as it were as well so it's a community thing it's this idea of purging the evil from among you as it says in deuteronomy 17 verse 17 the purity of god's people and by the way this is this is no less true in the church age as well. We we can't forget in the Acts of the Apostles, Ananias and Sapphira, when the church is just getting going, God kind of zaps them for their falsehood, for, for their lie that they told. And it seems incredibly harsh to, to a lot of people today reading the the text, that, that they drop dead. But um, God wants purity among his people. Now, what's interesting, too, is that, that Jesus takes... Ext- takes this idea of witnesses to to the extreme because yeah there has to be two or three witnesses and in John chapter 8 verse 17 Jesus even says that in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true and 1 Timothy 5:19 says hey if there's going to be uh, an accusation made against a church leader you've got to have two or three witnesses but what's interesting is that in John chapter 5 Jesus kind of defending himself against his critics. He gives five witnesses for for who he is. John the Baptist, uh his own miracles, uh God the Father himself, the scriptures witnessing to Jesus and Moses. So, hey, forget about two or three. I'm going to give you five. That that's how that's how confident. And you can read about this in John chapter 5 verse 31 to 47. So, that, I think that's that's why um there are the two demoniacs as opposed to just one as we see in in Mark and Luke. And so it's it's kind of mat, part of Matthew's theme. And by the way, that's well within the bounds of you say well that's not historical, you can't trust Matthew. No, that was well within the bounds of of how you could write uh biography, Greco-Roman biography, which is what the gospels are in the ancient world. But I I do want to talk real quick about uh, what happened in in Mark's version with with this Gerasene demoniac and and why why the region is really important where this actually took place, the Gadarenes, the Gerasenes what what difference does it really make This was a long ways from the water. Okay, this is one of the things that we have to um, we have to make uh, good sense of here. And I wrote this down. This is really really important. So if you look at a map. Um, this, this is probably about 26 kilometers. I don't know what that would be in miles, but 26 kilometers to the sea when Jesus casts out the demons into the swine and then they run as a herd towards the sea and they just go over the cliff and into the water. This is the fastest group of swine that's ever been seen on the face of the earth. I mean, this is some really, this is a long run. This is some really lean pork. By the time they get there, and the, and the farmers are just aghast, and they they actually ask Jesus to leave their region. Now, there's no way the gospel writers would make this up—that people asking Jesus to leave. But people ask him to leave their lives all the time, don't they? Even even in the modern world, and and obviously, no no Jewish person is going to be raising swine. There are this is not kosher. It's an unclean animal to the Jews. So that's one of the reasons why we know this is Gentile territory, and. They're probably thinking, man, if, he, if he's destroying the unclean animals, am I next? <laughs> um, not the case. So at any rate, um, Jesus obviously wants to, want to get, get, wants to get the gospel to everybody. And in Mark's gospel, in his version of this, by the way, we have here, Jesus says to, to, the, to the guy, what is your name? And he's really asking the demon who's possessing this, this man, what is your name? He replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. And that certainly would have struck a chill amongst Mark's readers because his gospel is written to Rome. This is kind of political satire. He's kind of linking Rome's kingdom with Satan's. He's basically saying, all right, Caesar claims to be ruling the world. He claims to be the divine son of God on earth. He's not. But really, his kingdom is backed up by Satan. And Jesus kind of gives us military command to the demons, to to charge into the sea. You know, go into those pigs and charge into the sea. And in, in the sea, by the way, in the Bible, that's where all the enemies of the Most High God reside. If you read the book of Revelation, chapter 13, read the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 7, all of the beasts, all of the uh, bad stuff, all all of the monsters come out of the sea. And that kind of goes back to... God drowning the armies of Pharaoh, right? As, as the Egyptians are chasing the Israelites in the Red Sea, they're drowned in the waters, Pharaoh's army in Exodus 14 and 15. Just check out the Exodus series we did on the Faith Explained. Kind of got more into the details on that. But man, that is a, it, it's a disturbing gospel. But I, I do think that's why there are two. I think uh, G, uh, Matthew's using this motif from Deuteronomy about the two witnesses um need to establish credibility, and certainly Jesus is more than offering these two witnesses. He gives five on his authenticity on his power on his person, so that uh, was really important to check that out today. but all right we've got to take a quick break here on the Kale Clark show. I just figured I'd do that one first because once we do the next one we're we 're probably not going to be able to get to this. I think the phones are going to ring off the hook. Maybe you saw this, maybe you didn't. Huge controversy online about Mary. Whew, on social media, you're going to want to stay tuned for this. 888 914 9149's Cale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Be right back.
1: to others. It's the Kale
0: Clark Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Hey, welcome back. 888-914-9149 is the number to call to talk to me for free. We are live. We're in the moment here on the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. As I promised, Mary went viral over the weekend. This is really having to do with Marian misunderstandings and quite frankly, outright heresies. About her that were flooding social media over the past few days. so gonna show you what what happened. gonna also talk to you about how you can make lemons into lemonade here. This is kind of a teachable moment for everybody. And so I, I, I kind of caught wind of this uh, just through reading a couple of tweets. and again, I was kind of traveling over the weekend, so I, I'm kind of late to the party on this, but um, let me let me just pull something up here. Uh, Jeremy Christensen, who's actually a lawyer and a convert from Mormonism, uh, wrote a a book about this, by the way, uh, published by Ignatius Press. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter, at TradVat2, the number two. And and he just posted, Nestorian heretics have entered the chat. And and then he he kind of posted a a tweet. He had retweeted a a tweet from somebody uh, who calls herself Patriarchy Hannah uh, on Twitter. And she said, when you look at the beliefs about Mary as a whole, it's not semantics. She's not the mother of God. She's the mother of Jesus, who was fully man and fully God. That's not semantics. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. That, by the way, that was her saying that, not me. We, we dealt with Nestorianism, which is an ancient heresy, actually just a few days ago on the Cale Clark show. And maybe producer Jim, if you remember which day that was, we can post that show in the. In the show notes, I talked about the theological cage match that took place in the fifth century between Cyril of Alexandria and uh, the bad guy, if you will, Nestorius, who basically said that you know uh, Mary's not the mother of God; she's only the mother of the human Jesus. Uh, No, that's actually heretical, (laughs) and we'll we'll get into that in in just a minute. So there are a lot of responses to that. A lot of people were taking this person to task, but there's a lot of other stuff about about. Uh, Mary that was floating around, um, and I had to ask, I, I asked on Twitter, and you can follow me there, uh, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E, I, I asked the question, hey, does anybody know what the original tweet was that kind of touched off all of this talk about Mary? And uh, I did I did get an answer, uh, somebody named, thank you, just a few minutes ago, actually, before the show started, uh, George Algazzini, thank you, George said, uh, let me look it up, let me find it, I'll be right back. And then he said, sorry, it took a while because she deleted it. Here is a screenshot. So apparently the tweet that sort of touched off all the Marian controversies online over the weekend was from somebody named Abby Libby, who um, has since deleted this tweet, and she says, As a Protestant, I draw the line at slandering Mary. I could never believe she denied her husband sex. Or their entire marriage like an absolute and then she uses a, a a word that i will not use on relevant radio this is absolutely terrible and an, an absolute slander against our lady i think she's trying to be funny didn't work um at any rate she since deleted that tweet she probably got dragged quite a bit on on social because of that and obviously she has an issue with the perpetual virginity of mary um, but, of course, the four Marian dogmas, the four defined doctrines that you need to believe, that you need to believe about Mary to hold the Catholic faith are her divine maternity, and this is the fact that she's the mother of God. I'm going to get into this in a second because this is um, this is what a, a lot of the, the tweets, a lot of the problems um, that people are having with Mary sort of relate to, this idea that she's the mother of God, her perpetual virginity, that she remained a virgin her entire life her assumption into heaven, her bodily assumption at the end of her life. And, of course, there's also the Immaculate Conception. All right, now we probably won't have time to get into all of that tonight, but a lot of the tweet storms about Mary have to do with the fact that she is the Mother of God. And, um, and, and obviously, some of the, the, the non-Catholic tweeters out there are sort of holding what they don't even realize is an ancient heresy. And that's a problem if you... Forget history, and as Cardinal Newman once said, Colonel John Henry Newman, who was, of course, one of the most famous converts to Catholicism from the Protestant world of all time, he said, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. Because if you, if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it. You're bound to repeat the same errors again and again and again. And most of the heresies, the false teachings of the early centuries had to do with Christ. And, and the, the fact that Mary is the mother of God, that dogma really does protect the identity of Jesus. We kind of talked about that in our previous episode and we talked about uh, Cyril of Alexandria and Nestorius, that big cage match that they had, not not for real, not like the one that's allegedly happening between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg from Meta. I don't know, but we'll see if that actually takes place. But yeah, so, so some other stuff that I saw that came up um, along these lines. Uh, Jeremy Boring, who is the co-ceo of the Daily Wire. I saw this pop up on my timeline. He said, uh, My official statement on this weekend's Twitter controversy. It is my belief that Catholics believe Mary was a perpetual virgin untouched by sin. Protestants largely do not. Both Catholics and Protestants largely believe that she, while a virgin, gave birth to the Lord Jesus. All Christians view her as, at minimum, the mother of Christ and a pretty swell lady. End of quote. So that's Jeremy Boring, uh, who is not... Uh, he, he. I think he describes himself as a nominal Christian, and somebody tried to, um, ooh, man, somebody tried to take him to task for this, and he, um, he. Real, I should read this to you because it's pretty fiery comeback. Somebody on Twitter kind of responded to him and asked him, "Are you Jewish?" I'm asking because I don't have any hot takes on Jewish religious beliefs. I find it really obnoxious how Jewish people chime in like you did and wrongly, I might add, and try to explain my beliefs. That's somebody named Dissident Wright on Twitter. Jeremy Boring responded to this guy. He said, Jews can express opinions on anything they darn well please. And I sort of altered his wording there. He didn't say darn, but he also said, jerks can too. Lucky for you. And again, I had to sanitize the language a little bit. He said, I did not offer a hot take. I offered a cheeky take. I am not Jewish, but it's been well established by other Twitter jerks Sanitized again, that I am nominally Christian. Uh Jewish people are not your problem, but your only hope of salvation is in one. Ooh, that that's quite a mic drop there. Your only hope of salvation is in one. Of course that is Jesus of Nazareth, who is Jewish, as was Mom Mary, as was all the apostles. And so yes, the church obviously grows out of Judaism, it's Judaism with the Messiah having come, it's, it's, it's not so much, any, any person who's um, a Jewish convert to Catholicism would tell you, um, somebody like, for example, Roy Shoman, who wrote the book Salvation is from the Jews, Honey from the Rock, he, he would always say that, hey, I didn't feel like I found a new religion, I, I just, this is the consummation of my, my, my Jewish faith, they would say. It's the Messiah has come, and and his name is Jesus. So, anyways, um, lots of lots of um, kind of sometimes angry conversation was happening about Mary. Uh, t- really touched off by that one tweet tweet that I that I read. And there's another guy named uh, Ben Zeisloft, who apparently used to work for the for the Daily Wire, and he posted a bunch of Marian prayers. And he said, I am wondering whether any of my Roman Catholic friends would be willing to denounce any portion of the following prayers. Are these accurate portrayals of how you view Mary or are these over the top? Sincere question, he writes. And what are the prayers that he, and then he posted a few uh, prayers such as the Regina Celli. Queen of heaven, rejoice, hallelujah, for he whom you did merit to bear, Alleluia, has risen, as he said, Alleluia. Pray for us to God, hallelujah. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary, Alleluia! for the Lord has risen indeed, Alleluia. And we know that traditionally during the Easter season, uh, instead of saying the Angelus at noon, we say the Regina Shelley, Queen of heaven, rejoice. And it's kind of a, a way of congratulating Mary on the resurrection of her son from the dead. So, by the way, you're listening to The Ko Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888 9149 I don't know if you caught any of these Marian controversies on social media. Did you weigh in? Did you respond? And then he also posted the, the Memorare Prayer, which we pray every day uh, on Relevant Radio especially. We pray it for an end to uh, legal abortion in all 50 states and all around the world. And, of course, you know the Memorare Prayer. Let's pray it again. Let's pray it. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to your protection, implored your help, or sought your intercession, was ever left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto you, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To you do we come. Before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word Incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your mercy, hear and answer us. Amen. So this guy, Ben Ziesloft, posts this stuff, and he, and he thinks it's blasphemous. He thinks it's over the top. And I thought there's there's a really, really good response from a guy named Joshua Charles. I'm going to read this response to this guy because this guy's actually a convert to Catholicism as well. He's a former White House speechwriter. He's authored or co authored a whole bunch of books. And he responded to this guy and he said, Ben, have you ever actually read an in depth treatment of Marian doctrine by a Catholic biblical? Theologian. I honestly don't think you have, but I hope I am wrong. Are you willing to do so? Because if you're not, you have zero place to make the claims you are making. I was a Protestant until I was 31 years old. He says, I believed what you believed. I discovered I was profoundly mistaken, but I had to swallow my pride, reconsider my paradigm, and actually listen to what the Catholic Church has said on this matter, including. Countless generations of my Christian ancestors, including many martyrs, going all the way back to the first century. And then he suggests that, hey, you might want to check out some of these books. Um, Tim Staples wrote a book called Behold Your Mother, a biblical and historical defense of the Marian doctrines. He's a convert, by the way, as well. Dr. Brant Petre By the way, I think Dr. Brant Petre and I've said this before, I, I do think he is the finest young Catholic theologian in America. Uh, His stuff is just phenomenal. Dr. Brent Petra wrote a book called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. He also wrote a book called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. But Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, unveiling the mother of the Messiah. Well worth your time. Dr. Scott Hahn's Hail Holy Queen, the Mother of God and the Word of God. A lot of people are very familiar with that book. Of course, uh, Dr. Hahn is another convert to the faith. And so this guy, Joshua Charles says, the biblical roots of Marian devotion are deep, profound. They span both Old and New Testaments. That's why so many of the Church Fathers believed things about Our Lady that you now declare are unbiblical. The tradition, and of course he's talking about sacred tradition, the tradition that you put in scare quotes, (laughs) not just air quotes, I like that, but scare quotes, uh consists mostly of the biblical reflections on the marian mystery by these very church fathers and and so this guy was sort of saying you know is this from tradition quote unquote or is this in the bible and of course we say that the word of god comes to us through sacred tradition and sacred scripture in fact even the scripture started off as tradition it didn't get written down for a little while Uh, It was sort of passed by down by word of mouth until uh, the first new testament document was written probably St. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, early 50s, maybe 50, 51 AD. Um, but the church was growing for 20 years before that, right? So how did that happen? Well, through apostolic teaching, through sacred tradition. At any rate, um, Joshua Charles continues on. And he says, hey, when, when certain heretical groups, false teachers came about that contradicted these Marian doctrines, such as Nestorius in the 5th century, the church formalized its doctrine, as it has done countless times with its authority to bind and loose, to ensure that the mind of the church could be settled. That is the tradition that you put in, in scare quotes. The very same thing happened in Scripture. When a theological controversy arose, the church exercised the authority it had from God to settle the matter. Acts 15, and that's a, you could say it's the very first council ever of the church, the Jerusalem Council, the first Jerusalem Council in about 49 AD. And this is the, the idea that when, when Gentiles convert to the faith, do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to obey the kosher food laws to accept Jesus as Messiah? And the church said, no, they don't. And in Acts 15, it says, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. So the whole idea is that the Holy Spirit is superintending this process. So Joshua Charles, again, he's kind of in dialogue with this Protestant guy. He's saying, your congregation, your denomination does not claim, nor does it possess, such authority. The biblical church, the Catholic church, does. Thus, when it has made such a formal decision, this decision becomes part of the tradition it passes on to future generations. That's a beautiful thing. You know why? Because it means not every generation begins from scratch, They are in living communion with their ancestors in the church Christ promised his protection and guidance to until his return. The condemnation of old heresies and the more precise articulation of doctrine in opposite to them becomes part of our patrimony, our inheritance as Christians. Okay, this is a really long response and now Twitter allows these super long responses now. And, and that's a good point, because we don't have to start from scratch, because this stuff has already been worked out. Um, now, the, the fact of the matter is that every, every single Christian group has a magisterium of sorts. What's a magisterium? A teaching office. So we can say, you know, in our case, it's, it's the Pope and all the bishops around the world in union with him. It's all the, the councils of the church. It's all the dogmas of the church that have come before. Uh, we're not starting from scratch here, folks. And And if somebody just tries to take their Bible and say, well, it's just me and the Scriptures, the Scriptures are perfectly self-explanatory, they're not. Uh, Even St. Peter says in the Bible, he says, look, when you read Paul's letters, he says some stuff that's sometimes hard for people to understand. And so we we do need this magisterium, we do need this teaching office. And some of the greatest heretics in the history of the Church, talking about people like Nestorius, talking about Arius, the, the worst of all, who said that Jesus wasn't God? Essentially, that's why you have the Nicene Creed. What the Nicene, the Council of Nicaea was all about. He basically took a whack of verses from the Bible and kind of cherry picked them and constructed a theology to say, "Look, if you read these verses, it kind of makes a convincing case that Jesus isn't God." But you forget you're forgetting about the other verses. You're also forgetting about uh, already established teachings of the Church and the Magisterium. Uh, Jesus knew that people were going to fight about this stuff. He could foresee it, and that's why he set it up the way they did. Okay, so Joshua Charles continues on. He says, the meaning of Scripture is public. It's intended for the world. Therefore, its mode of communication cannot be private and denominational. That's why God gave us his church, to ensure that the public meaning of Scripture could be authoritatively taught until Christ returns. That's why he promised to guide it, the Church, into all truth, that it would never be defeated by hell, that what it bound or loosed on earth would be bound or loosed in heaven, and that he would be with it until the end of the age. Please stop misrepresenting Catholic belief on this matter, and please do some basic homework to learn what your opponent actually believes and why. Thanks to YouTube and many other sources, many Protestants are waking up to the reality that they've been sold a pack of misrepresentations And some of them are lacking goodwill, also some lies about the Catholic Church. So if you keep attacking a position that you've never given a fair shake to, you'll be joining those who are lying about the Church. Hear her out, and the Church is obviously portrayed as she, the Bride of Christ. Hear her out, disagree and criticize afterward if you must, but do not condemn what you have not taken the time to understand. End of quote. Wow, that is quite a response there, and and I do think that it is fair to let the church speak for herself. Don't don't rely on what you think people have heard. And somebody commented on my, on my feed, um, and I, let me just find it here. I think it's a great point. Uh, Bill Moody. Yeah, how could I have forgotten Bill? He, he said, that really, what's going on here? This is the old adage of Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who said that there are not more than I think he said more than 100 people in America who actually hate the Catholic Church and what it teaches. But there are millions of people who hate what they falsely believe to be the Catholic Church or Catholic teaching. They, they've, they've got all these caricatures of Catholic doctrine, stuff that they've heard, stuff that they've been taught by their pastors, or stuff that's kind of in the ether floating around, misrepresentation. So the, the good thing about when a misrepresentation happens is that we can then correct it. It does give us an opportunity to, you know, well, let's put the real teaching out there. And that's really what heresies are all about. Once a heresy gets out there, then you've got to respond to it. And that's where these dogmas of the church really come in. I, I always call them calluses on, on the mystical body of Christ. That's where there's really hard edges, right? We've got to, this is truth, this is not. We've got to protect the body from disease, in this case, the disease of false teachings that, that could creep in. So we've got to be very, very clear on the things that really, really matter. So I wonder what you think about this. I'd love to hear your comments on it. Uh, 888-914-9149. We'll be right back on The Kale Clark Show right after this. This is The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith
1: into everyday life.
0: Hey, welcome back. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888 914 9149. I'm stoked to be live behind the mic once again after a couple of days off. Independence Day, great holiday. And I picked up a couple books. I tweeted about this as well. I've been looking forward to reading for a long time. 1776 by David McCullough. And um, that, that's, uh, that's what I read. I read sort of a sample of that book. Um, on my uh, e-reading app, because i when David McCullough passed away, great American historian, wrote some amazing books. um I kind of started to to I did a show about him actually, and I first found out about him because I did a little bit on his his work habits. I always find it really interesting how people work and especially writers how they how they sort of get into their craft. and he had this writing cabin on his property and uh, the book uh, seventeen seventy six which came out in two thousand and five. It's not about the whole Revolutionary War. It's just about that one year, which was obviously so seminal uh, in the founding of the United States. And I uh, read, read the sample, got the book, finally, uh, from the library. Uh, it was checked out all the time. I'll probably have to buy my own copy. And I also picked up a book on Benjamin Franklin called Benjamin Franklin's Last Bet by Michael Meyer, which got some pretty rave reviews last year when it came out as well. Ben Franklin's pretty amazing, too. I, so I'll, I'll talk about this stuff later. It's pretty exciting Stuff and we also have been chatting about these Marian controversies that erupted over the weekend on social media. Uh, Mary went viral, so it's a great opportunity for us to talk about it. And what we actually believe about Mary, as especially the Mother of God, that's what a lot of these these tweets and misunderstandings are really all about. People, without even realizing it, a lot of uh, non-Catholic Christians were taking up the heretical position of Nestorius, which I'll explain in just a second. Is, is Barry still on the line there, Jim, or is he... Okay, let's, let's go to Barry in Washington, D.C., in the nation's capital. Hey, Barry.
1: Uh, Bill, thanks for taking my call. Great show, as usual.
0: Oh, Fantastic, thank you, Fantastic
1: uh, topic. Uh, I've been asked this question many times by a Protestant, and I want to ask you, oh, when you say Mary Theotokos. Mary is the mother of God, Mm-hmm. and what does that mean?
0: Yeah, well, it means that, well, actually, you know, Barry, if you want to stay tuned, I'm going to actually explain that, because uh, I'll explain it in some detail, because I think that that's a great question. What do we mean when we say Mary is the Mother of God? So so I'll answer your question in, in the next couple of minutes. So stay tuned, thanks for listening, thanks for your kind words. Just really quickly here, let's go also to Mike in Providence, Rhode Island. Hey, Mike.
1: Hey, great show. Love the show. Love the topic. Um, I want to comment about uh, evangelism. Mm-hmm. All Christians, whether, whether Catholic or Protestant or non-Catholic, uh, or virtually all Christians, believe that it's your, part of your calling is to spread the truth mm-hmm. yeah. um, and to allow other people to understand the truth. And when speaking to Protestants or Christians who believe in solara scriptura, meaning mm-hmm. you should only go by the text of the Bible, and obviously the Catholic Church teaches uh, the word of the Bible and also apostolic tradition. Yep. But in uh, reaching mm-hmm. people on the truth of the Catholic per- Church, poli- particularly people, who have been taught Solara Scriptura, show me where it is in the Bible. There is so much in the Bible, and I find that uh, Catholic commentators, sometimes radio hosts, will uh, try to address a concern of a Protestant or someone who believes in Solara Scriptura Mm -hmm. with non-biblical explanations which is uh, very often a losing dead end and they fail at spreading truth and spreading uh, in evangelizing basically Um, because the minute you say, well, according to, and you refer to some old book or reading of the Catholic church, you lose them immediately. And there's so much in the scripture of the Bible that there's so much material where you can go and you can say, but also uh, the reason for the Catholic teaching is the Bible says this.
0: Yeah, Mike, Mike, let me just jump in there, Mike, because you're making some excellent points there, really, really good points. I want to respond to them. Very, very good call, Mike, in Providence, Rhode Island, and thank you for your kind words about the show. Really appreciate you. You're, You're so right. When you're talking to somebody... And, and you heard Mike mention the term sola scriptura, this is the idea of the Bible alone, uh, one of the doctrines of the Reformation if you're talking to somebody who holds this doctrine they're not going to care, he's right, he's, he basically said they're not going to care what a church council said in the 5th century necessarily if you can't show it in the Bible so we got one thing going for us we have to. We, we always have to remind ourselves of this whenever you, you feel yourself losing confidence in this always remind yourself of this maxim which is that the Bible is a Catholic book. There's nothing in the Bible that contradicts the scriptures, uh, the faith, and, and there's, there's, there's nothing in in, this, in the Catholic faith that contradicts the scriptures. I think I kind of messed that up. So there's nothing in the Bible that contradicts the Catholic faith, nothing in the Catholic faith that contradicts the Bible. That's what I, that's what I meant to say. But And by the way, Jesus also, when he was disputing with people, he used this methodology as well of common ground. He started where people were at. When he was talking to the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And when he was talking about, there were some pretty there were way more clear verses in the Old Testament on resurrection that he could have used, but he didn't use them. He he only used uh, quotes from the book of from the books of Moses, the first 5 books of the Bible. Why? Because the Sadducees didn't accept some of the other books. They only accepted the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Uh, a couple other things here and there. So Jesus didn't even bother throwing some scriptures out from say Daniel that are fairly clear on resurrection, maybe Job. But he goes he goes straight for a book that he knows that they do accept and he builds from there. So I think that's always a good strategy if you're talking to somebody who who's a Bible believing Christian, they they take the word of God seriously. Um if you can make your argument biblically, that that helps to it really does help, believe me and and I've been on both sides of the divide. i I'm a revert to the faith. I spent many years in Protestant ministry, and i I appreciate that 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 tack because um it's in some ways the only way that you're going to get a hearing uh, from some people. And then you know stuff about the church can can come later, maybe. but but just to answer also uh, Barry's question in Washington, we talk about Mary as the mother of God, which is one of the one of the doctrines that was in, in question here. Um, Yeah, listen, all all Christians believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And Jesus has two natures, by the way. His divine nature, of course, as God. And he also has a human nature, which he got from Mary at the Incarnation. But he is one divine person with two natures. Okay, so Mary didn't give birth to a nature, like as Nestorius wrongly taught in some of these uh, folks on Twitter were saying over the weekend, they're basically taking an historian position without even realizing it. He promoted this heresy that Jesus is two persons, really. He said that Mary only gave birth to the human person, the human nature uh, of, of Jesus, but but she's not the mother of God. Well, look, if you deny that Mary is the mother of God, you're basically saying that either Jesus isn't God, or Jesus is two persons, one human, one divine. But he's not. He's one divine person with two natures. Okay, so if it's just you and your Bible, you're going to have a hard time working out all the all the theology precisely. This is why God has given us the church. The Holy Spirit has guided the church to all truth. It continues to do so. But it is in Scripture. There are some verses that you can point to. Um, the Visitation in Luke chapter 1, Luke 143, Elizabeth says to Mary, you're the mother of my Lord, you say, well, this doesn't prove anything. But if in the New Testament and also in the Old Testament, Lord refers to God. All right, you could also go to Matthew one twenty three: the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And then, of course, we have Saint Paul. Here's another one that you can use: Galatians chapter four, verse four. When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman. And we could go into a whole bunch of other verses as well on on, on the divinity of Jesus and how He says and does things that only God can do. And we've done that on the Faith Explained Show and other places. But but the the early fathers of the church do confirm this in 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 more explicit language. Ignatius of Antioch, one of my favorite saints of all time. Um, martyred in in the gladiator fights in the Roman Colosseum. I don't know if Russell Crowe was there, but uh, he wrote this around AD 107 on the way to his death. For our God, Jesus Christ, was conceived by Mary in accord with God's plan. And that's from his letter to the Ephesians. That's right, he's writing to the same city uh, St. Paul wrote to, the Ephesian church. St. Irenaeus of Lyon, and it was just his feast day the other day. Um, He wrote this, and this is from his famous uh, masterwork called Against Heresies. He said, the Virgin Mary, being obedient to his word, received from an angel the glad tidings that she would bear God. So, but here's the, here's the kicker, by the way. A lot of uh, non-Catholic Christians don't even realize that the founding fathers of the Protestant movement were so clear on Mary being the mother of God. Martin Luther, for example, who was the original Protestant, he said this, and this is from the works of Luther, Uh, he said, in this work, whereby she was made the mother of God, this is Martin Luther talking, she was made the mother of God, so many and such good things were given to her that no one can grasp them. Not only was Mary the mother of him who was born in Bethlehem, but of him who before the world was eternally born of the Father, from a mother in time, and at the same time, man and God. End of quote. All right. so a lot of Protestants are shocked to hear this. John Calvin, who is maybe the number two gun in the Protestant Reformation, he said this. He didn't think Luther went far enough. He he said, quote, it cannot be denied that God in choosing and destining Mary to be the mother of his son granted her the highest honor. Elizabeth calls Mary mother of the Lord because of the unity of the person in the two natures of Christ, was such that she could have said that the mortal man engendered in the womb of Mary was at the same time the eternal God, end of quotes. That's John Calvin. So Luther and Calvin uh, both note that Mary is the mother of God, and she she has to be our mother as well. We We have to make this very personal. And at some level, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And so, we, just as Jesus entrusted Mary to John and said, you know, son, here is your mother, woman, here is your son. And he took her into his home. And he actually did that. He took her to Ephesus, according to tradition. But we, we have to kind of metaphorically take Mary into our home as well. And so, why not trust her with something? If you're listening today and you're not sure if you buy into any of this, you know, if you've got a prayer problem, ask Mary to intercede for you. Ask her to pray for you. And that's really what all these Marian prayers are all about. We're asking for her intercession. <laughs> but she is extremely close to her son. And uh, I know for me, it's hard for me to say no to my mom, and I'm sure, sure it's true for our Lord as well. James says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so the saints in heaven who have gone before us, they're, they're they're far holier than we are. If you're asking your friend to pray for you, why not? Why not? You've got nothing to lose. So, hey, we're, we're out of time. I We've had an incredible... Uh, first day back after the holiday on the Kale Clark show. Thank you so much for calling in, everybody. And if you didn't get in, we'll get in tomorrow. Okay, so stay tuned. Trainings coming up, followed by the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky. Jim Shaper produced. Patrick Hale. I your phone calls. Take it away, Michaela.
1: Thank you for listening to my daddy.